0: Harvest is over. That can only mean one thing. The time to start preparing for next season starts now. Select a seed. Treat the seed. Pick a pesticide. Apply the pesticide. Choose a herbicide. Apply the herbicide. (sighs) But the first thing you should do is fund a True Choice prepaid account before February 24th. Because when you do, you can save up to 10% on the leading crop protection products from Corteva AgriScience. The time is running out, so fund your account today at Corteva.us slash TrueChoice. Lewis Hamilton is finally a six-times world champion. We've been talking about it being when rather than if he seals the title, and he finally did it with second place in the United States Grand Prix, behind, of course, title rival Valtteri Bottas. So a very big day for Lewis and for Formula One. I'm your host, Ed Straugh, and joining me to look back at the United States Grand Prix and Lewis Hamilton's achievement is Scott Mitchell. And I guess we should dive straight in on this, Scott, with Lewis Hamilton, the... It clearly affected him clinching the title. He knew it was as good as done, but it's never over till it's over. You were in the press conference uh, after the race, the, the kind of world champions press conference. They had him on his own because he was down in the TV pen for so long before coming up to the, the press conference, and uh, he was in quite reflective mood, wasn't he? Yeah, it? Yeah, he was. Uh,
1: Lewis gets a bit of a gets a bit of a bad rep, I think, with some with some of the the words he uses or the, the you know his choice of phrasing sometimes, but it's because. And we won't go into this too much because I'm pretty sure we've covered this topic before. He's got this incredible knack of being very reflective and well thought through and and and, and emotional and, and eloquent in the way he talks in person. And then you see those words written down in black and white and he comes across as quite arrogant or, or quite distant. So maybe when people read what Lewis had to say, they might not quite understand what, what we mean by this. I mean, I've I've covered F1 full-time for Autosport since the start of 2018. I've been in pretty much every press conference that Lewis has held after qualifying in the top three, pretty much every press conference when he's finished in the top three. I've been to countless of his written media sessions on Thursdays and Sundays after Grand Prix in the Mercedes hospitality unit. I went to his Champions press conference last year. I've never seen him as human and as vulnerable as he was tonight, actually, I thought he was really reflective, as you said. Um, the reality of becoming a six-time world champion, and uh, as, as another journalist put to him, cementing his status as one of the greatest British sports people of all time, clearly hasn't sunk in. And he, he said, "How? how am I... How am I supposed to feel? And I've got no answer for him. I'm a million miles away from being a six-time Formula 1 well, world it, but champion. it's also,
0: it's, it's a difficult thing, isn't it? Because the it sounds stupid, but the six titles are a little bit in between, isn't it? Because he's kind of in this in this point where he's got loads of titles, but it's a seventh and the Michael Schumacher equaling one next year that's the, I guess, almost the, the really exciting one. But it, it's just... He's just so used to success, it's success upon success upon success, and you're right, he is more reflective. When I was there, when he won his first world championship in 2008, in the McLaren garage actually, with that amazing finale into Lagos, and he did have a press conference after that, and it was very, very different kind of in tone and everything, and everything he's been through over the years and learned, I and mean, he always says he's always growing as a person, etc. Those are some of the phrases that I think sometimes great on people, but he really has, and he's grown as a driver. As well, he's always driving himself on to improve his performances, and that's what's kept him kind of leading the way, shall we say, and actually what's been a very tough era of Formula One in terms of the quality overall of the drivers. There's some been great some great drivers he's been he's been up against. But I guess how how are you supposed to feel after that? He's he's just he's achieved the objective for the year almost, hasn't he? And the thing that really impresses me is that he's achieving that determination to keep pushing yourself and keep achieving that same thing over and over again. And it's not easy, even though it may look like it when you look at the results. To keep doing that is hugely impressive. And it's volume of success and consistency that, that is the real special thing about, about a driver like Hamilton. Especially
1: when he's doing it, at, at the very least, a sustained level of performance. And if not, getting better every year. There are elements of his title success this year that I think make it his best championship. Because he had Bottas come out fighting at the start of the year after being smashed in 2018. Ferrari came out of a car that was was very quick and ultimately now we look back looked back at that first half of the season and at the time it felt like Ferrari just was nowhere near on Mercedes level and actually when you look back on the balance of the first 12 or 13 races Mercedes might have had the edge and certainly did during that first part of the season but Ferrari could have gone into the summer break with five or six wins under its belt and then with the form that they've shown since then it could have been a completely different championship so Hamilton has risen to this bigger occasion he has he's 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 won 10 races as i think i said on the last podcast he's won 10 races in a season for something like the fourth time in 5 years or something crazy so it's that sustained level of brilliance in the face of greater and greater competition. He's not sort of fumbling his way to the title, is he? Every title just seems more resounding. I think it was probably around probably Germany when Bottas shunted when he had the chance to massively slash into Hamilton's lead. Germany was the point where I think Hamilton properly took control of this title race, or at the very least it felt like he wasn't going to lose it. And then he followed that up in Hungary, where obviously Bottas blundered and Hamilton put in a brilliant charge to victory. It's performances like that, that even though in his own words, he doesn't have moments like Singapore 2018 qualifying, race performances like Hungary and the race in Mexico, the tyre management, and the tyre management very, very nearly got him an unlikely win today. What a way to crown the, the winning the title that would have been. But I just I just think that's amazing. Six titles, him clear now in second in, in in the all-time list because obviously he was he was he was level wasn't he on uh, on five titles with Fangio before now it's only only Schumacher's seven ahead of him so to, to get to that point and to be looking at getting that seventh title and matching Schumacher the way Hamilton's driving the fact that these titles are coming in more impressive fashion that he's not he's clearly not peaked as a driver or if he is he's got a bloody amazing sustained peak as a driver so i think it's super impressive and i agree with what toto wolf said after the session i see no reason why hamilton can't be gunning for seven next year
0: well in fact and hamilton uh on thursday uh i was there when he was talking about 2021 obviously the other 2021 rules unveiling we're not going to really talk about those rules on this podcast we'll come back to it on thursday because there's so much to talk about with the with the race but he basically said, Well, yeah, I expect to be here in twenty twenty one and I see no reason to be anywhere other than Mercedes. So he, he should be uh he should be carrying on. But it, it is phenomenal that the smart money realistically is on him on him equaling Schumacher's record of seven titles next year, and he should get to the Schumacher win record, which is absolutely astonishing. I mean, seven titles and that many wins just seemed impossible to to match, quite frankly. So to, so the fact that he should you know you never know it is astonishing and like you say sustained success it's, it's five times out of the last six seasons he's won at least 10 races in a year so yeah just uh, just phenomenal and we should also say for mercedes toto wolf also said uh, after the race that the kind of key for them was making the least mistakes and mercedes haven't made many errors this year hamilton and bottas haven't made Many errors. So, uh, in fact, Potter's crashing out at Germany is probably, the, uh, and in fact, both of them in Germany had probably the uh, the biggest uh, the biggest errors. But yeah, just phenomenal from Hamilton. I know sometimes we get people complaining about us just going on about Hamilton and just being oh well, he's just always banging about. But he's he's been incredible for a sustained period of time. He there's no argument that he's an all time great. I think I, I, there's no credible argument, and to my mind. That will convince me that he's not, unless somebody's got something, some remarkable new perspective to to offer on it. I think now you're getting into the position where you're asking if he is now. It's now a question of whether he is the all-time great, should we say?
1: And what he's done with Mercedes should not be underestimated because we talked a little bit about this earlier at the track, didn't we? Ed? It's all in some people's eyes. I feel like Hamilton's success comes with an asterisk. They just sort of go, yeah, he's won this many races, and this many titles, but Mercedes has had the best car, so it's actually been quite easy, and it's not really the same as anyone else. But as as Lewis pointed out this evening, I asked him if uh, I asked him about the, the criticism that he, that gets put his way, the idea that you know how much of it is down to team and car. And how much satisfaction does he take from being part of that process? Because I think it's massively underestimated the role he's played in it.
0: Well, he he talks about the kind of—it's almost his virtuous circle, isn't it? You know, he makes him—he makes his engineer better. His engineer makes him better. Everyone around just that the the team combines to lift itself to a higher level constantly. And he talks—he talked about
1: finding areas to improve within the car and being able to drive the development direction of the car. Shouldn't forget that. Uh, he came into that Mercedes team for 2013. The development of what was going to be the foundation for all of this dominance in the, the V6 turbo hybrid era was already laid on the engine side, but he had one season to get in, get the team on his side and away from Rosberg, get a car to his liking, and he's just refined that, refined that, and refined that. I don't see, apart from the fact that Schumacher, when he moved to Ferrari, was a big part of that, building phase of the getting the right people in and, and, and lifting the team up from a much lower point, that's the only difference I can spot really with what Schumacher did at Ferrari and what Hamilton's done at Mercedes because I don't look at Schumacher's seven titles and 91 wins now and go, yeah, but you've got to put an asterisk against them because he didn't have any competition in 02 and 04 because that's just not how
0: sport works. No, exactly. I mean, Schumacher was an absolutely phenomenal driver. To have that sustained level of success, You know, you can just about with a slice of good fortune, just about win one World Championship, but you've still got to be damn good. But to have this level of success, you, you just don't do it through just happening to be in the right place at the right time. You get it by earning your place in the right place at the right time for a long time and sustaining what you do.
1: Well, just uh, just as a point of, of
0: what Hamilton does that
1: is so special, if you look at him compared to Bottas this year, they've had... They were level on on poles going into this weekend. Bottas scored pole at Austin, so he's now on five. Five versus four for the season. And I think Hamilton's got 16 podiums to Bottas's 15 from the 19 races that have been held, right? So at that point, you're thinking, wow, these two are really evenly matched. Then you look at the race wins. Okay, Bottas won today, and he did a brilliant job to do it, and I think it's his most convincing performance in a Grand Prix car, in my opinion. Certainly a top one. Hamilton's got 10 wins. So there you got two drivers, same machinery, top-class team, doing the same job pretty much on Saturdays, ultimately getting it onto the podium at an almost, almost identical rate. But Hamilton's the one making the difference and he's... He's the one there picking up the pieces when Ferrari F- Ferrari fluffed their lines. He's making the difference on the Sunday, and that cannot be underestimated because the simple fact that Bottas has got more poles than him this year proves that Bottas is an extremely, extremely fast F1 driver. Hamilton is just superior when it comes to everything that you need to put together a championship.
0: Yeah, very, very much so. Bottas is a very, very, very good Grand Prix driver and Hamilton's just an absolutely exceptional one for the ages and we, we could keep talking about his qualities uh, indefinitely but we are going to have to kind of get into the the race in a, in a little bit of uh, bit more detail and of course you're going to have to delve into your enormous American style fast food drink that you've got. We've we've both got one in, in ridiculously sized. Mine one's particularly Mine's not ridiculous.
1: Sized. I ordered a regular one and and what I'm, I must say, my chocolate shake has certainly cut this would prob this would pass as a large in the UK, I think.
0: No question, yeah, yeah. No this question.
1: but this is a regular. Yours, um I your I might need I might use yours to, you know, take a bath in later. you the one you've got is enormous. Yeah, it's absolutely, uh, absolutely. I wouldn't get very clean if I took a bath in a in a milkshake.
0: No, that's very true. That's not an image I think you should be uh, giving to. Uh, to this is going to become an R-rated podcast, isn't it? Yeah, that's uh, that's trying to try and avoid that. Although uh, it's a strange scene actually. We've got there's an inordinate amount of kind of artistic decorative guitars on the wall.
1: Oh, I think they're ukuleles
0: in our condo. No, ukuleles are four string, are they not? These are six string. Oh, fair point. I think, or they could, yeah, there could be some. I'm not sure. Someone I'm sure will correct us, but I think a ukulele is four string.
1: I demand if you're listening to this podcast and you're an expert in the difference between a ukulele and a guitar, come round to our apartment right now. There you go. No one's here, so therefore, there's no guitar
0: experts listening to the podcast, so we can call it what we want. Ergo, we win. Uh, well, let's get let's get on to the uh, to the race. Of course, Lewis Hamilton ended up finishing second. Valtteri Bottas got the victory. Max Verstappen had a say in it as well. So let's look at those those three drivers because they were the three protagonists. Um, Max Verstappen's chances obviously took a little bit of a blow early on. Bottas held the lead from the start. Verstappen had to kind of get clear of uh, Vettel so he took that wide line around CERN 1 and then there was that little uh, moment where that kind of, that, that bit of contact with Bottas's right rear sort of driving over the the front left end plate, shall we say, of uh, of Verstappen's car, and it was weird actually. <laughs> he sort of studying the replay, and it just sort of it sort of folded down, then sprang back into place. And Verstappen immediately was a little bit concerned about that. But then Verstappen also later, around about lap five, I think uh, the team said they discovered he was lacking a little bit of uh, a little bit more arrow load from there being a bit of a hole in the floor, some damage picked up from nobody really knows where. But we ended up with this this classic. Battle of Valtteri Bottas and Max Verstappen on two stops versus Lewis Hamilton on one. Um, Were you surprised that, uh, that that it ended up being being sort of split between Hamilton and Bottas?
1: I was because I think it's quite rare, isn't it, to see teams diverge on strategies. And for a while, I was a bit worried that from a Mercedes point of view, that it was going to be a bit similar to what we saw in Singapore when Ferrari had to react. For Leclerc to take to maintain track position as the then race leader, but then in doing so to protect that track position, he ended up falling behind Sebastian Vettel, and then the team strategies cost the lead driver that deserved to be in the lead track position and ultimately the race. And I worried, I was worried that we were going to go that way for a little bit, but once um, once Verstappen stopped first among the leaders, that. Nasodis didn't have a choice. They had to react. And Bottas is ultimately the race leader, so he's the person whose track position you
0: you protect. Well you can see how close Bottas was to Verstappen, he's only just ahead of him when he came out. So there's no chance Hamilton could have pitted and overcut Verstappen. That was impossible. So that position was at that stage lost for Hamilton. So it was the right decision. The the thing of front running teams trying to have the same strategies to avoid being seen to favour one driver or the other is is fine, and people obsess about it a little bit too much. But sometimes you just have to play the race it is and they they got it completely right there. They had to do what they did. Verstappen was always going to be proactive with his with his stop, um, and although initially he kind of held Bottas quite close, but then the last sort of four laps before he stops, he slipped back. Um, to about four set, almost four seconds behind. So while he was holding it around one point eight, you thought well, he could he could actually do an undercut attack on Bottas here, a proper one, and jump him. But it, it it wasn't quite uh, quick enough, and he was struggling a bit with pace. So yeah, it was it was logical. They ended up on those strategies, and it was sensible that then Hamilton was on this uh, extended stint. Interestingly, the team at that stage really they thought more that Hamilton's chance was to try and get a second. Uh, by jumping Verstappen on the one-stop versus the two-stop. and But Hamilton clearly had in mind that he wanted to try and beat Bottas, and he was happy to kind of, rather than taking an easier second by managing the tyres more aggressive, well, <laughs> driving the tyres less aggressively, managing them more, he tried to strike out and uh, and get the win by uh, staying clear of Bottas, which he just couldn't do in the end.
1: And the fact that he only lost the win by by a handful of seconds, I think he was, what, four or five seconds behind Bottas at the finish shows... Four,
0: 4.1 seconds at the end and it was four and a half laps from home that the pass for the lead happened.
1: Yeah, so it just goes to show just how little difference there was in reality between a one-stop and a and a two-stop. And I, I admire Bottas for, for, for making the two-stop work because one of the things that we often lay at his door in terms of a weakness is his inability to make things happen. And I think this is the first time he's won a Grand Prix in this way. I don't recall him.
0: I might be wrong. No, no, I'd agree with that. They've usually been from kind of having track position and and sitting there. You could argue that Baku this year, where he slipped behind Hamilton off the line, then kind of repassed him in turn one. But I still argue turn one is part of your start phase. But this was a losing track position and regaining it. Yes, he had the tyre advantage, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a relatively easy pass in the end. But even so, he had to kind of make it happen and... He could easily have just got stuck, and we have seen him sometimes in such circumstances getting stuck. And We saw last week when when Lewis was able
1: to hold off Vettel. Kind of like I just said, a, a different race, but but still, it proves that it isn't always easy. Just because you've got a tyre offset, just because you've got fresh tyres, different tyres, whatever, you still need to make it happen. And the fact that when Bottas got up to Hamilton, he wasn't. It, it wasn't just a case of right. I'm just going to wait until I can just breeze past and get the move done before before the breaking zone. And it's nice and easy. He you know, properly tried to contest the breaking zone with with Hamilton into at the end of the back straight, and he got forced wide for his troubles. But, he, but Bottas said afterwards, fair game. I'd have done exactly the same thing. And um, he 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 was the one that was sort of pushing Lewis into making small mistakes into the into that corner that leads on to the to the long back straight, which gave him a better run. So okay, when the move finally came, it was it was easy. Hamilton didn't contest it too hard, but I just like the fact that Bottas actually took the fight to to Hamilton when he needed to, because once he got sort of within a couple of seconds, it would have been a not to. Not to to pigeonhole him too much, but it would have been a very Bottas thing to do to just sort of sit there at one and a half seconds drift, and then just blame the fact that he'd used all of his tire advantage catching up to Lewis and just couldn't do anything when he got there.
0: Yeah, I think this was Bottas's best. It's the best of his seven wins in Formula One, uh, to my mind, and yeah, a, a very good, uh, very good, well measured victory for him. Uh, Lewis Hamilton also a good drive. You know, he he, he really wasn't quite there in qualifying. Struggled on both Q3 runs. And then, uh, yeah, starting fifth, he had a really phenomenal first lap, actually. He managed to get ahead of the clerk. And then uh, that great pass on Vettel. So uh, high-class points on both the Mercedes drivers. And for Stappen it's a little bit of a shame he had that damage. Because he could have been a bigger threat without that, and in fact, if you looked at qualifying, it was so tight across the top three cars, the top three team, teams in, in qualifying that any one of them could have got pole. And in fact, credit to Bottas for for securing pole courtesy of his, uh, of, his uh, of his first run. Really, uh, just a really good all round performance. We have got to kind of move on to the Ferrari performance because this is a a matter of some controversy and discussion, shall we say. In terms of where the, the the performance had gone, they were still pretty brisk in qualifying. Vettel was only 12000 thousandths off in qualifying, and of course we should add that Charles Leclerc was on the uh, had gone back to the spec two engine after having an oil leak in uh, in P three rather than the spec three that was introduced at let's uh, Spa. But what was clear was the the Ferrari advantage on the straights that had been there wasn't there to the same degree. It was it was significantly weaker, shall we say, in in that regard, and this followed this Red Bull-triggered technical directive. Obviously, dangerous ground we're kind of on here. We don't know 100% what's going on, but various people have been, uh, if not necessarily pointing the finger, they've been sort of subtly nodding the head.
1: Oh, the one person in particular has been more than just subtly nodding the head, because you know that Max Verstappen can't keep his views to himself. I'll stick to the facts. Um, Before... Uh, Well, actually, before the Mexican Grand Prix, uh, Red Bull had queried with the FIA some scenarios relating to the fuel flow measurement, uh, whether or not these things would be legal or illegal. And they got told by the FIA that these would all be illegal. And with the the fuel flow in F1, it's measured by a single FIA sensor. And basically, any system designed to manipulate or trick or bypass that sensor or have the effect of doing that is illegal. Um, so that's what, it all sen- that's what it all centers around. So this has become in the middle of, and again, sticking to the facts, this has come in the middle of intense and increasing scrutiny over Ferrari's power advantage, particularly in qualifying. So you don't have to be a genius to work out what Red Bull is angling at with the the clarification there because it's not the first time that someone has gone to the fia in recent weeks and said we think this might be being done is it legal
0: or not because of course this is the process if you send a thing to the the fia technical department saying can we do this if you are told like we've got this idea here's the here's the information they can say yeah that's fine in which case it just goes back to you but if they say no you can't do that it then gets circulated to everyone and becomes a technical directive. So you can you can basically, what Red Bull did is effectively ask, oh, can we do this? Can we do this? Can we do this? And if I went, no, 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 no way. Severe breach, I think, was the phraseology about if any of that was done.
1: Yes, so uh, so they were all told by this technical directive, no, you cannot do this. So, hypothetically speaking, were someone to have been doing this in the previous, what, uh, 18 races, uh, they would not be it would be unwise to continue doing it because if they were then protested or for whatever reason there were further checks done because the fia was 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 wary they would be um to rights on it so we then come to austin which is the first race after this clarification has been made so the clarification was put to the fia i believe before mexico but then this week is when the fia gave the answer so then we come so we come to austin we get to qualifying and according to Mercedes and Rebel Honda, suddenly, and it's not massive necessarily, it's not that suddenly the Ferrari is nowhere in a straight line, but the, the deficit that these guys have to Ferrari is lower in qualifying.
0: I think, yeah, the, the GPS data was fairly clear on this. So to a number of people who've, who've analysed it as a Zuka, Obviously, we kind of ignore Mexico because it's high altitude, so it's a little bit of an outlier suzuka because a slightly more sensible and we're talking kind of six seven six seven tenths advantage the straights in it's main straight in japan come to austin you're kind of down to two and a half tenths something of that of that order so still an advantage now this is where it gets difficult because correlation does not equal causation we cannot be sure that ferrari has stopped doing anything to do that. it could just be they had a bad weekend it could be about the setup compromise and we have to be very very careful there, but obviously the timing is interesting, and a lot of people have been pointing the finger. Should we say the, the one thing I will say is some of the stuff that that Red Bull were asking about would be stuff that is is not a grey area. It is absolutely circumventing the monitoring system for the maximum fuel flow. Because it's not of, it's not naughty. No, it's 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 a so full on breach, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So exactly so. If anyone were doing that, then it would be to me. To my mind, it's extremely serious. It's not a grey area. It's outright. Yeah, because loopholes so, are there to be exploited. Because, because the experiment. rule is your fuel flow limit is hundred kilograms per hour. That's your maximum instantaneous fuel flow. If you exceed that, or deliberately exceed that, or try to game the monitoring system, you know that that's not a grey area. You know what the limit is, so you have to to be to be within it. So, yeah, we, we don't we don't know for sure. The timing and everything is interesting and people are kind of uh, making insinuations, shall we say? And that's the one frustrating thing. I I understand where Mattia Bonotto, Ferrari team principal, is coming from when he said he'd like... He's fed up of sort of these comments going around and he'd like some kind of definitive proof or for the FIA to say, no, it's all uh, it's always all been legal, etc. But, uh, yeah, we're not necessarily getting that. But it, it was interesting and Ferrari was was struggling... To replicate its form. That said, it was. I think that car could still have been on pole, and obviously that was only twelve thousandths off. So we could still have seen a Ferrari on pole. We might have seen them then struggle on pace in the race, and we've seen a very similar pattern. So it's only one race. We have to be very, very, very careful about this. And I'd be, I would be very surprised if Ferrari would risk doing something like what, what, what is potentially being in, implied here because it's because of the severity of it so let's see but it's but the way everything lines up is interesting
1: we should point out you you mentioned the 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 car setup compromises um bonotto said today that one of the elements is we know that they've got this low load lower down force low drag uh concept faster car on a straight line slower through the corners they've been working at chipping away at that and giving it higher peak downforce. And according to Bonotto, they went for a higher downforce setup here because they wanted to to basically experiment with a compromise. Those are his words. I'm not saying... I can't can't say what downforce levels Ferrari were running, and what they would normally run. But he says that was a thing that they did. So that, if that's true, would have affected their straight line speed.
0: Which is plausible. It's not the absolute... It's not the most power-sensitive track on the... On the calendar and you think those fast sweeps in sector one etc there's there's a lot of cornering work to be done at this circuit
1: yeah and it's not like um should we say uh, suzuka for example where you've got um the long run from the hairpin all the way down to, to to spoon for example that long right is basically a straight and the fact that 130r is flat means that the long back straight actually extends into the chicane so there are always these little things that you need to factor in so let's Benotto and Ferrari, the benefit of the doubt, and say that's playing a part as well. Plus, if you're comparing the Delta to Leclerc instead of Vettel, as you pointed out, he's in an, a high-mileage Spec 2 engine. So older Spec, older in general, probably not as powerful. So that's so we give Ferrari the floor there. That's what they're saying. But then we go to Sunday and race day. We've all, At this point, we've already had Hamilton come out and say, it's interesting to see what's come out this week on Saturday evening. Reference to the TD and suggestion that that's respond that's caused Ferrari to have a bit of a power drop, or it, he at least acknowledged that the two things had coincided, that the the power advantage or the speed advantage on the straights was lower here. So then the race happens, and then Verstappen is asked in the press conference, having already shot his mouth off to uh, to Dutch TV in a very very strong way. And I'm not going to repeat his words on here because. I think he crossed the line. He, he
0: he left no doubt as to what he thought was going on. Let's exactly.
1: And in the press conference, he it's very easy to add two and two together and work out because he's asked, have you been surprised by Ferrari being nowhere and do you have an explanation for that? And Max says, not surprised at all about it. After what came out, that explains everything.
0: Yeah, very, very much so. And always we've got to be careful with circumstantial evidence for something like this I'd want to know 100% and I, and I don't, I'm not, I'm not afraid to say I don't have absolute 100% certainty uh, on this but it is was interesting after the race Toto Wolff has been very careful about what he was saying and I said well hypothetically if a team even before the technical directive was issued was doing any of those things that Red Bull suggested, does that not go beyond grey areas and something much worse and he said yeah it would be foul play so if Hypothetical, I'm underlining that. If anybody's doing that, if anybody was doing that, to me, that would be very, very severe. That's that's more than just a, a smack on the wrist. You, that that's kind of systematic trying to, trying to cheat the system. So let's let's hope there's nothing in that.
1: I, I spoke to uh, Toyoharu Tanabe, the Honda technical director, after the race. I've got a very good relationship with Honda, and uh, Tanabe's always been generous with his time. I've never really felt like he's misleading. Uh, and he's also not one to um to get shouty he's not a particularly controversial figure but speaking to him about this we've been very careful trying to be respectful not you know I didn't want to ask any leading questions and tanabe doesn't want to speak on behalf of Honda and accuse anyone of anything untoward but it's very clear how uncomfortable Honda is about the situation for example and obviously they're almost lumped in with Red Bull because it's their team that's going around asking the questions. But I asked the same thing that you asked to Toto. I asked Tanabe-san, if someone's doing this, what do you think? And he said sometimes there are grey areas in the regulations. And even though Honda, quite famously, is not a fan of grey areas because they basically don't believe in grey areas. They think you're either um, adhering to the rules or you're not he said there are, sometimes there are grey areas and sometimes those get exploited but there are certain things as well that would not be a grey area and I believe that he's basically saying this would not be one of those occasions, all they want is a clean fair fight um, as Honda I don't I think they feel that some of their progress has been undermined by the fact that they're getting closer and closer to Mercedes and then Ferrari's made this step so maybe they feel a little bit put out by it but I, what Tanabe also said is to be careful and to to be wary of making too drawing too many conclusions from one race because there are some mitigating factors such as Leclerc's engine. If the setup was slightly different, the setup was slightly different, different track characteristics. Um, let's go to Brazil. Got that ultra long run up the hill and then onto the start finish straight. That's presumably that makes Brazil. I think Lagos is slightly more power sensitive than. Than, than Austin so we've got two more races by which point we will have three races at three different circuits by the end of the year since this TD came in and only then and it would still be circumstantial evidence but only then can you start to get like anything remotely close to a firm conclusion as to what may or may not be going on
0: yeah well we should move on from that but just to say they've not been charged with anything they've not been not certainly not been found guilty of anything so uh, yeah we'll watch this with interest as we build up some more uh, some more data but yeah you certainly hope that uh it's not in line with what some of the more extreme suggestions and whispers in the paddock have uh, have been but yes we ended up with charlotte clerk in fourth place sebastian vettel of course his race was pretty short-lived he had the right rear suspension uh gave out relatively early on there wasn't a clear reason given for that uh, i think you you were with ferrari at the end of the race weren't you so i don't i think they gave no they said so they were still looking into what happened, but obviously it went in quite a big way. Yeah,
1: it was quite spectacular. I thought Vettel did quite well to hold on to it, because the car lets go in quite spectacular fashion at a very high-speed part of the track as well. So, But obviously Vettel's race was, had already gone a bit south from that point, because he'd gone from the front row to, I think he was 7th, wasn't he? He'd been overtaken by by both McLarens? Ricardo or, and, or, Norris, no, or and Norris. So yeah, one McLaren and one, one Renault. It. Um, and he was complaining the massive understeer, he was struggling early on. understeer, and locking it's really up and weird. I don't what I don't know what happened. And I suggested to you maybe had something like broken or, or was amiss with the suspension from the beginning, maybe, and then it just manifested itself spectacularly when there was a full-on failure a few laps later. But that is properly speculative. That's my completely my guess based what, on what we
0: know. What we know is that Vettel was complaining from very early on that there was something a bit weird there didn't seem to be any obvious impact with another car or kerb or anything. It's a very, very very bumpy circuit. Circuit has deteriorated quite a lot in recent months and they're taking to you know, take some action to smooth it out again for next year and some of those bumps in a stiff Formula 1 car were pretty savage. Unusual loads teams were seeing on some of those, so possible, but again, got no evidence for that. That's entirely speculating uh, as to what would be the cause. but whatever happened, it, it knocked Vettel out, um, but not before Hamilton had done that nice move on him in the oh, uh, that was lovely, wasn't around it? turn eight, and then completing into turn nine. That but, was not,
1: but not the best uh, move around the outside of on the first lap that you saw.
0: Well, no, exactly. I, I was uh, I always like to study the onboards, and uh, Roman Grosjean did a nice double move on Giovinazzi and Kvyat uh, slightly earlier in the S's um, on the on the first lap, which I thought was really nice. Often you get these like little unheralded moments when uh, people do really nice work. That you know I'm not going to be too critical about those producing it because it's a minor position busy first lap loads going on so you don't necessarily get everything but it's always interesting when you see these little moments that uh you miss i imagine that'll turn up on one of the those onboard compilations that formula one put out after the race which are always quite fun for seeing uh moments but yeah it's nice to see some overtaking in some uh in some high high speed but yeah it, it basically meant leclerc was uh ferrari's sole representative and an utterly disconnected 52 seconds behind bottas yeah i mean obviously he had that he he made the stop so he could do the uh, the fastest lap and get the point for that. My uh, least favourite point, of course. Uh, but yeah, he was he was really nowhere, and, and he was helped out obviously by the fact Alex Albon and the second Red Bull. Very, I mean, all credit to Albon. He was struggling a little bit for pace. I think he was slightly quicker than qualifying, perhaps suggested. I don't think he was at Verstappen's pace, but. Little scruffy on his Q, on his second Q3 lap uh, on on his Q3. He might lap, have rather. nicked ahead of Hamilton if he if he nailed it's, it. it. It's possible. Yeah, he, he certainly should have been a, a, a tenth or two uh, or two further up. But then he had this. I mean, he's come out of this race at the back of the lead group and ahead of the midfield, with loads of stuff going against him. He got pinched between Leclerc and Sainz on the first lap. Picked up a bit of damage. He made a pit stop. He'd lost the only set of hards he had to basically cold cracking down to the condition. So that that set of hards was taken away from him before the race. It wasn't safe to use, and you don't get a replacement. So he straight away went into the race with one less set of tires, and then has to do a two stop, uh, which may
1: or may not have been planned. But even I guess even by starting on the soft, if he then wanted to do a one stop, start on the softs and run the, the 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 hard to the end, that was he didn't he have that be, option, yeah. did he? So well, course, he was already locked into. To the two-stop, I yeah, guess. Yeah, and,
0: and in and, and total, there were three stops because there was a lap one stop, then effectively you're doing the race distance after that on a two-stopper. So, but once again, he comes through, yes, fast car, but he had to do a lot of overtaking, still came through to fifth place. And we saw how many times Pierre Gasly, early in the season, in the first half of the year, was struggling to do this. But even when Alban has things a little bit against him, or he started down at the back... I think that that's three of his races in the second half of the season he's basically been starting at the back or very early basically at the back but he's still come through to pick up these fifth sixth places and he's basically constantly been been there and racking up the points for those uh, those uh those decent finishes so yeah credit to him
1: yeah I, I was really impressed i joked actually during the grand prix that uh that even alban's really distant fifth place finishes are better than and what Gasly was managing when he was really distant and in fifth place because Gasly just sort of seemed to on those those sort of results when he was in the red Bull were just because he would just fall away wasn't it but but Albon actually did a a really good job in, in 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 this one I was I was I was very impressed by by how he acquitted himself really
0: I mean he's still got to find the pace to match Verstappen or get closer to Verstappen consistently but but he's he's done come.
1: 19 Grand Prix now. Exactly, exactly. So, I, find, I, I, I keep falling into this trap, actually. Sometimes I think, oh, I know he's doing a decent job, but you know he's really got to be closer to, to Max. And then I remember there isn't anyone who would get in a Red Bull in their first season in Formula 1 and be on Max's level. No,
0: no, no. But, you know, you have to... Um, well, another Max Verstappen might be. But, yeah, the, the standards are very high in the top Formula 1 team, and Albin has done more than enough to ensure he stays in that seat for next season and really doing a, uh, a decent job so looking further down Daniel Ricciardo won class b really good drive from Ricciardo the, the, the Renault is not the easiest car to get the best out of on a single lap in qualifying so it quite often starts behind but recently it's tended to be quite a strong race car we saw him having a great little battle with uh, Lando Norris early on they uh, he, he got ahead of Norris and then Norris passed him with a great move and then Ricardo did one of his trademark late breaking mean, He was asked Ricardo about that after the race, and he had a he had a big grin when I asked him about that, and just sort of enjoying the fact he could have a bit of a go. And said, "Well, yeah, I was sort of thinking about whether I should do it or not. Particularly he had he had that pass on Perez that failed when he locked up and went off uh, last week in in Mexico. So uh, we haven't seen so many of the Daniel Ricardo special passes, but that that was one for Norris and rewarded with a Class B win. And it just shows when things are going well with the Renault." it it does work well and he and he beats uh yeah he beat Norris who had a very strong weekend uh, on merit with Carlos Sainz in uh in eighth place. McLaren ended up splitting the strategies with Sainz striking out on the one stopper and Norris on the two, but ended up in in much the same uh, same position.
1: Ricardo I thought was excellent and, and that result. Drive. That that result launched him to the uh to the to the front of what what can really be classed as uh Class B because you've got Class A which is the two Mercedes, the two Ferraris and Max Verstappen and then you've got what I'm going to grossly term Class A.5 which is the two drivers that have shared a Red Bull over the course of the season and Carlos Sainz because I'm not including Carlos Sainz in, in Class B because I think he's been so blooming brilliant this year and so consistent and he was annoyed in Japan when we were talking to him about being the master of class B because he was like I'm more than just class B we're doing we we more than just better than the rest. So I'm going to class him as class 8.5. But Ricardo over the last two Grand Prix I think has leapt from 13th to 9th or something like that in the drivers' championship. He's he, he's 9th now and he's also he's put 9 points between him and Nico Hulkenberg. He's Hulkenberg was doing really well second half of the season, but the last two Grand Prix Ricardo has just He's just had that little bit extra class about him. We know that Renault's paying him an absolute fortune, and maybe sometimes a sixth or seventh place finish doesn't feel like much return on investment for for Renault. But races like today, when Ricardo is capable of making the difference, uh, I spoke to Norris after the race. He said that he felt that Renault just had a faster race car than McLaren. But Ricardo is certainly getting the most out of it. He has been he's been excellent, really excellent since since the summer break.
0: Now, much as you try to remove Carlos Sainz from Class B, I've just—we've uh, we, got some uh, data we keep on, on Class B, which wipes out the top the top three. And in fact, if you knock out the top three teams and just reaward all the races, so whoever's the midfield winner is, is effectively first. Carlos Sainz did in the uh, United States Grand Prix clinch the Class B championship.
1: Oh, congratulations! I think that's a.
0: That's a good round of applause, which uh, which can be heard. Uh, yeah, Sergio Perez actually a second in that in that fight, and he uh, <laughs> is, is he. Yeah, he's I a, just don't
1: know how because he, I spoke to a, him after the race. He's had a cracking season, and he he said after the race that he's had a really annoying year.
0: He has, but he's been, been brilliant. I think he's been much better. He's performed much better as a driver, considering what he's got this year than uh, than last year. And in fact, again, although he missed he missed the Weybridge in F P two, it's always irritating when drivers miss the Weybridge. Gasly did it in Azerbaijan because. Understandably, it leads to a pit lane start, and it, it's draconian, admittedly, but it, it stops teams taking liberties, should we say? Um, why you'd want to do that in FPC, I don't know. But uh, anyway, that those are the rules, and you need to pay attention and catch it. But from the back of the grid, he managed to finish tenth. Just it was quite it was quite hard work, but he did a he did a really good first stint, and he he one stopped as well. Perez is a really really good driver in terms of extending the. Stints. He's a he's a real master at mitigating rear tire slip, which is which can be a killer for uh, for, for for tire degradation. So really, uh, yeah, a fine drive from uh, from Perez there. But it was quite action packed in the end because uh, he had to he had to pass Gasly. He had to, he had a light contact with Gasly. passed him in the right hander uh, after. After you, you go turn left at the end of turn, at the end of the straight, turn twelve and then turn thirteen. Right hander. There's a little bit of contact that actually did some damage to gazi's suspension. But actually, looking at that incident, and I'm not sure whether it was ever really shown properly uh, after the race on the on the live feed or not. The the move was absolutely fine. Um, from, from Perez, Gazi wasn't de- wasn't delighted, but it, it was fair. And then on the last lap in the in the sort of second in the one with that. Sort of curved left-hander approach into the into the hairpin. Kvyat chucked out the inside and did get past, but it was quite a bargey move. And for the second week in a row, Kvyat got an instant penalty that cost him points and dropped him places. And
1: then had a massive moan about it, despite taking another driver out in the process.
0: Yeah, I have no problem with the penalty.
1: No, we like we like hard aggressive racing, and I like the fact that the stewards uh, have been encouraged to let drivers race more and race harder. And Kvyat seems to think that they're killing the sport by penalising moves like his. But you're not allowed to drive people off the track. This isn't British touring cars. There's a
0: difference. Because, for example, you can argue that there's kind of a live by the sword, die by the sword. If you're going side by side and you're on the outside, you're liable to being hung out to dry. What Kvyat did with quite a late move was, in making that late move, the momentum you have by committing to that and using that that late kind of braking, if you like, to get alongside carries you wide. So you've earned being there by the fact that you will hit the person at the exit of the corner. And that is very different to if you and I go side by side through a corner and I'm on the outside and you run me off. We're both already there, so it's slightly different. Um, and that and that's kind of where the, the line is I asked Michael Massey, the race director, after if if now people, despite the complaints from Kvyat, that drivers are now getting a better feel for what the kind of let them race rules are, because we've now got i don't know two-thirds of a season of case study should we say so it's becoming reasonably uh reasonably clear, and i think it has actually livened up the racing that said i don't necessarily blame for kvyat trying that on the last lap because he didn't have a great deal to lose he didn't he didn't actually lose points by trying that and he might have got away with it and it, it was a lot it was better than what he did in mexico let's put it that way because the one in mexico was nowhere near working when he just booted hulkenberg into a, into a little spin and uh yeah, it's just a bit of a surprise that Kvyat was quite so irritated about it.
1: Well, he's got a habit of uh, shouting his mouth off over this sort of thing, so that's not a huge surprise to me. The thing that I don't like is when people like Kvyat make the argument that by doing that, making that decision, you're killing racing and you're disincentivising them trying. But I don't agree with that at all because all that rule does is basically say that if you if you do it and you try and you misjudge it to the point where you Get an advantage by contact. That is where you draw the line. So all that is is just properly policing something. It doesn't. It doesn't discourage drivers from trying. Because bottom line is, do the overtake, but
0: do it better. Yeah, which is absolutely fair. And of course, this shuffle caved out down to twelfth place. So He finished in the final results behind Kimi Raikkonen. Now the Alpha is not very good at the moment. It just hasn't doesn't got the downforce. Uh, others have made bigger steps. I thought Raikkonen drove a really good race. Actually, he's been a bit lackluster on and off in recent times. But he took the softs at the start. Good soft tyre bite off the line, barreled up the outside on the run into turn one, got himself track position, and he made a great fist of trying to score points in a car that shouldn't have been scoring points. I thought this was actually a really, really good drive from Räikkönen. And it tells you a lot about where the Alpha is, that you've got a former world champion turning in a really good drive at a track where he won last year. And he's ended up with 11th place. For, and I can't really see he could have done much better. You know, We've not seen Alfa Romeo scoring many points at all of late i think that's that, that six race in a row without without scoring a a point in in raikkonen's case so i think for yeah. kimmy
1: it is yeah he's on a horrible pointless run and obviously given got those back-to-back points in what was it italy and, and singapore but apart from that it's been a been a very fallow period for the team but Bear i spoke i spoke to i spoke to kimmy after the race there was an amusing little line um where he said uh uh, he said if you take many if you take many of our previous races it was uh, it was their strongest for a long time but when you finish 11th you get absolutely nothing so you might as well be last.
0: <laughs> yeah he's not wrong but even so it's good to see uh, Raikkonen turning in a good drive in a season that was uh, kind of running out of steam and he of course finished ahead of uh, 13th place Lance Stroll. Now Stroll picked up a little bit of damage he's always very aggressive on the first lap he kind of took the middle lane into the first corner and found himself pinched between Hulkenberg and Gasly I think it was and uh, yeah, that was just—it was a high-risk move—and picked up a little bit of damage. He had a big wobble at turn two, went off the track, and that was kind of his day, pretty much done. So he was—he never managed to get into the uh, into the points seriously, but finished finished 14th ahead of uh, Antonio Giovinazzi in the, the other Alpha Romeo. Start didn't start on the soft side—a slightly more orthodox race. Still, a few little areas and little small areas in the race which are frustrating me with. Uh, with Giovanazzi at uh, at the moment, obviously fifteenth place. Roman Grosjean on the Haas, which was, you know, doing uh, doing what Haas does. At it's this doing
1: Haas things, really, isn't it?
0: Yeah, nice overtaking <laughs> maneuver, but didn't have the uh, ha- have the pace. Uh, Pierre Gasly was sixteenth, so he obviously he didn't actually cross the line because he had that suspension problem. And then ahead of the ahead of the Williams, of George Russell, uh, Kevin Magnussen. Classified eighteenth didn't actually take the checkered flag. He had the the I think it was the right rear brake went. Um, a couple of laps from home, we should break actually
1: disc ex- exploded to use his his terminology. Yeah, well, it's it's
0: just a big big puff of a uh, <coughs> brake. That's dust. my that's my impression. Jack that...
1: Benyon did an excellent pterodactyl impression on the All Sport podcast a couple of episodes ago. So that's me doing the impression of an exploding
0: has brake disc. I hope everybody enjoyed it, but we we should actually mention because after. We, we didn't really talk about this, actually, and we should have done, but uh, once Bottas had got past Hamilton for the lead, Verstappen was closing on Hamilton, but this helped because it meant, uh, in Hamilton's case, because Verstappen reckoned he probably would have got past, but with a with a has parked in the gravel trap at turn 12, the main overtaking chance was wiped out by yellow flags, and last two times round, Verstappen, who was one second behind at that point, wasn't able to attack, so that could well have cost uh, Verstappen second place.
1: Yeah, it, it, could, it could well have done. And and ultimately, uh, Verstappen did have to, to settle for third. But what I, what I should point out, which I think is is, is important, is we, we talked obviously a lot about what's going on with Ferrari and their lack of pace. But I think it's very, very telling, very significant, not just for the, the Grand Prix that we've got left this season but for 2020, that a Red Bull, with slightly damaged front wing and a damaged floor, was only really denied a second place finish today because of that yellow flag, and might well have challenged for the victory. So I think that bodes I, I well for what Red Bull been, and, and Verstappen are
0: doing right now. Yeah, I think Verstappen would have been a. threat fact, the last few races they've kind of got their at back together. I think they had a run where they lost their way somewhat with the setup, and uh, and that's 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 obviously something they've learned from and understood now. But well, I
1: think it was just a bit weird from like not to. Not to, to, to labour a point too much, but basically just very, very quickly. Um, disrupted weekend and a crash for Verstappen in, in, in Belgium. Engine change, grid penalty, and then first lap incident in, in Italy. Got the setup wrong by their own admission in Singapore. Russia, it's not really their kind of track and they struggled with the car balance, but were sort of pretty much there or thereabouts in, in Japan. And, and Christian Horner reckons they'd have had a similar result in Japan as they've had today. Yeah, at Austin, obviously... Should have been, was on pole, lost pole in Mexico and then had a an awful first few laps where really he got forced off by Hamilton, then a puncher in Mexico. And now here, I think they finally get that the result. that I think this is the first time they've had performance that they feel that the car's capable of and they've got a result to go with that. But even this result isn't quite what they expected or, or really feel that they, they they could have done had they maximised
0: everything. Yeah, it is encouraging for, for next year. Obviously, we're hoping the, the big three teams are all at exactly the same pace. So we see uh, Battle Royales week in, week out, perhaps too much to, to hope for. But I think genuinely this weekend, certainly in qualifying, any of the three teams could have got pole. I think Ferrari's race pace was so poor, they'd have really struggled to retain track position. I didn't see how they could have done it and uh, saw how much time they uh, they lost. But yeah, very, very encouraging. Uh, I should quickly mention the last driver. I haven't mentioned Robert Kibitz. He retired with a hydraulic leak. He got ahead of George Russell at the start, and then George Russell passed him at turn 12 and then pulled away quite rapidly. Russell, again, was uh, significantly quicker than him this weekend. And then, yeah, Kubitz, uh, uh retired, so just two more races left for him with Williams. But, yeah, a good uh, overall, a, a, good in, a good interesting race. And, again, we're seeing these uh, converging uh, strategies. We should very, very briefly, as a footnote, mention that they did try the 2020 tyres, On Friday, very very cold. Struggled to get them working. Have not gone down well with uh, with drivers and teams, have they?
1: No, they haven't. Uh, the 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 drivers did not feel they were an improvement, and actually, in several cases, felt that they were they were worse. Some reports of some just slightly weird handling characteristics. So now the, the the feeling seems to be to take the data away from here, analyze it thoroughly. And see if it's worth persevering with a, with the proper test that's planned for Abu Dhabi, where you've got the full range of compounds. over They've got to do days. the Abu Dhabi test properly. It would be I ludicrous if- to to throw away all of the work Pirelli's done on twenty twenty tires to make them better, and then stick with the twenty nineteen compounds because we, you know, you're, you're putting in all that time, effort, and money to make something better. To bin it off because of a few cold laps in in the US in in Friday practice would seem stupid.
0: We should also notice. We should also note there's quite a significant change in the construction there. They're sort of more the, the shoulders are more pronounced. So in fact, some teams are struggling in terms of the clearances between the floor and the and the tyres the themselves because they're a slightly different shape uh, there. So there's some things to adapt. to. So they've got a couple of days running in Abu Dhabi at the end of the season. So that'll tell a bit more, I think. Um, there's always a tendency for teams every time they try a new tyre just to go, oh, no, this is wrong. But they'll have to reoptimize, understand, run the tyres in better conditions, and then conclusions can be drawn from uh, Abu Dhabi rather than that freezing cold Friday, which was bitterly cold and uh, just just non, not representative in the slightest. Maybe it'd be, uh, be quite good uh, preparation for Barcelona testing next year, but beyond that, it's just not conditions you would encounter. Well, thanks very much, Scott Mitchell. Uh, congratulations to uh, to Lewis Hamilton. We should say on a six world championship and to Valtteri Bottas for putting up such a such a, such a good fight this year,
1: and for securing runner up position in yeah. the championship. He can now not be caught for second. It confirms his best ever a season and result in in Formula One, and just proves. I know he won't care much for being best of the rest, but it just underlines the fact that he has had a, a strong season. His his best yet. He can take credit. for and, and and heart from that and he now needs to use this as a springboard for bigger and better things next year because as we discussed at the top it's going to take something
0: incredibly special to beat Hamilton well he talked about exactly that when you asked him the question after the race didn't he so he's already got an eye on next year and thinking finish strongly start strongly next year so credit to him for, for picking himself up particularly when we remember where he was 12 months ago where he just couldn't wait for the season to end and was uh, slumping at the end of the year well, please do check out autosport.com for all the fallout from the race and the latest from the rest of the world of motorsport. Autosport magazine, of course, will be out on Thursday. The Autosport podcast is out every Monday and Thursday. And as I mentioned, on Thursday, we'll have a an in-depth look at the 2021 regs and try and kind of draw together all of the reactions and everything and take a slightly more uh, reflective look at what, what we've learned. Obviously, there's some big changes planned there. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6 a.m. by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Network.